2: The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on
3: LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Tuesday morning, the 11th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. As you know, NEFET is to consider recommending to the government that vaccination will be made mandatory. NEFET will examine every issue uh, so that it can give advice to the government from time to time. You must get vaccinated or face a fine in Greece if you're over 60 years of age, in Italy if you're over 50, and from next month, health service workers will be obliged to get vaccinated in England. But here, the government has decided it will not force anyone to get vaccinated. I've been very clear that I favour the voluntary approach to vaccination. And in fact, we've done extraordinarily
4: well as a country in terms of 94%. Um,
1: uh, vaccination rate of the first and second dose. And even 63% of the booster were top of the European
3: League table, Union League table in terms of the booster campaign. And I think that speaks volumes for informing the public about the benefits of vaccination. Martin. Meanwhile, the head of uh, the Catholic Church, Pope Francis, is urging people to join together as one great family to reflect on the importance of immunising as many people as possible to fight the pandemic. Speaking yesterday about the pandemic, uh, the Pope said the it is important to continue the effort to immunise the, the, the general population as you much have as have possible. This calls for people. a manifold commitment on the personal, political and international levels. First, on the personal level. Each of us has a responsibility to care for ourselves and our health and this translates into respect for the health of those around us. Healthcare is a moral obligation. Sadly, we are finding increasingly that we live in a world of strong ideological divides.
0: Frequently, people let themselves be influenced
3: by the ideology of the moment, often bolstered by baseless information or poorly documented facts. Every ideological statement serves the bond of human reason with objective reality.
1: The pandemic,
3: on the other hand, urges us to adopt a sort of reality therapy that makes us confront the problem head-on and adopt suitable remedies to resolve it. Vaccines are not a magical means of healing, yet surely they represent, in addition to other treatments that need to be developed, the most reasonable solution the most reasonable solution for the prevention of the disease. The words of Pope Francis speaking yesterday. Let's uh, talk uh, to the leader of uh, the two Party, Pater Tobin, who's a TD for Mead West. Good morning to you, Pater Tobin. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, I think it's true to say you agree with the Taoiseach there should be no mandatory vaccination of people in this country. Do you agree with the Pope, though, that there's a moral obligation on all of us to get vaccinated?
2: Well, I'm very impressed with your translation skills this morning, I have to say. Uh, I think all your listeners will be very impressed as well. Um, I think that there's no doubt that the vaccine has had a significant effect in reducing the level of damage that the illness has had on individuals uh, and in society as well. There's no doubt that the vaccination has reduced the number of people uh, who have lost their lives, uh, who have ended up in ICU and ended up in hospital. But this idea of a mandatory vaccination is, is counterproductive and it's wrong um, i think it's an, an incredible situation that we have neffes considering mandatory vaccination we have a department of health researching their ethical and legal considerations we even have the eu commission advising governments to use them and then we have michael martin saying there's nothing to see here like who's in charge of this situation how does it come to a, a, a situation that the department of health are researching something and that the government is opposed to introducing, or that NAFET is considering implementing something that the government is opposed uh, to introducing. And um, it's, it's just an incredible situation uh, to see. And um, first of all, we have one of the highest levels of vaccination rates in the world. We've practically got full vaccination in this country, and you're never gonna get 100% of the population to agree to do uh, anything uh, in any country. And of the 6%, roughly, that haven't been vaccinated, um, a large proportion of those have had, actually got COVID already. So uh, they, the estimates are that roughly half of them would have had COVID at some stage or would have had some level of immunity to it. I think, you know, we're missing the point here. The point here is that we have a health service that doesn't have enough capacity. Um, like, if you look, there's 80, 89 people today in ICU out of 300 ICU beds. Um, 10 years ago, the government said that we needed 550 ICU beds. So we're missing 250 ICU beds because of government inaction in this country. So the threat to ICU beds is three times worse from government and underinvestment mm. than it is from ICU. Do
3: you accept that the Taoiseach put this question of mandatory vaccination to bed yesterday?
2: I hope he did. I, I just find it really weird that you have a Taoiseach saying one thing and you have departments uh, and paid individuals on big wages from the state actually still uh, researching the, um, the opposite of what the Taoiseach is saying. Uh, it doesn't make sense. And just one other point I want to make on the hospital capacity, because re- this is key here. Um, 20 years ago, there was 22,000 hospital beds in this state. Now there's 14,000 hospital beds. So there's 8,000 hospital beds missing as a result of cutbacks over the last 20 years. In total, there's about a thousand people who have COVID in a hospital bed. Again, lack of investment in, go, in 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 hospital capacity is eight times more damaging to the hospital service than actually COVID at the moment. And we need to make sure that we invest in hospital capacity, not just for the people who have COVID, but also for the million people out there who are on waiting lists for actual. Illnesses such as cancer, diabetes. Mm.
3: And when it comes to COVID, uh, whatever about these other illnesses, uh, I'm sure the same applies. But definitely when it comes to COVID, uh, prevention is better than cure. And that's uh, why there has been this push to get as many people vaccinated as possible. Uh, I suppose the goalposts keep changing in this. And perhaps that's the reason why. Uh, civil servants are, are looking at uh, the legal or constitutional questions that might uh, arise uh, from uh, such a, a proposal if one was to be made by NEPHIS to government. Uh,
2: I'm, yeah, I'm surprised that it's happening now, to be honest, because we're actually in, in many ways in a better place than we were, for example, this time last year. Uh, Omicron is significantly milder than Delta uh, or the Alpha uh, variants. Um, And actually, we have such a high level of uh, vaccination already complete within society. Um, It's it's just strange that they've decided to look at the issue now. And you're right that prevention is better than cure. But the best way to prevent an illness spreading is for people to COVID test. And this is something that Aintu has been pushing since October 2020, that we would have wide-scale antigen testing available to but, people. But
3: that only discovers whether you have the disease or not. Uh, I think prevention would mean preventing getting it in the first place.
2: Well, I suppose if, if everybody discovers that they have it and then they uh, stop circulating, well, then that prevents other people getting
3: mm. it. But there's and over a 1,000 so, people and, in hospital at the and moment. NPHET, and
2: Nephilim have set their minds against Antigen testing right up until mm. basically November of last
3: year, which is an incredible situation. Yeah, and I suppose that's uh, the world we're living in where the world turns on its head, and that could be the case when it comes to mandatory vaccination. And I guess that was the possible reason I, I was uh, suggesting uh, might be uh, put a, a, a in place uh, for looking into mandatory vaccination. Whilst it won't happen now, maybe it'll be needed down the line.
2: Yeah, there's an issue here as well. Think about if, if you introduce mandatory vaccination. What happens is you have to put some kind of penalty in place uh, if a person doesn't take a vaccine.
3: Mm. In Greece, it's a hundred euro a month every yeah, month. Yeah, and, 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 and a pension even, is four hundred euro, so it's an awful lot of money.
2: In, in, in other countries, they're talking about three thousand euros, three thousand yeah. five hundred every three months if a person is not vaccinated. And they're actually talking about if a person doesn't pay those fines, they're talking about jail sentences. Mm. Now, we live in a liberal democracy, and a liberal democracy is something that we should be proud of, and that that our rights as citizens come from our constitutional rights as, as citizens of this country. Now, the idea that in a liberal democracy we, we would start jailing people because they don't uh, uh, take a vaccine is an anathema to most people. And, and I actually think mm. we saw a backlash against the idea in the general population yesterday, and I think what Micheál Martin did was to try and shore up uh, support and, and make sure that he wasn't on the wrong side of, of the, uh, the population's views in relation to this. Also, you know, mandatory vaccine, vaccination ha- has been shown in, in other countries to actually increase resistance against vaccination. Mm. So in other words, if a person is sceptical of a vaccine, if they believe that um, they don't need a vaccine, that they're in, in good health, uh, etc., or if they're worried about a vaccine, if you tell them, well, you're going to go to jail if you don't take the vaccine, what that does is just actually increases the level of opposition.
3: Okay, between. but it may be introduced across European uh, countries. Uh, that's what we were hearing uh, uh, Ursula von der Leyen say yesterday. She wants a pan-European approach to this and that. Uh, it would be mandatory everywhere. I think they're already considering the prospect in Germany.
2: Yeah, there's, 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 there's considerations in Germany and in Austria at the moment for certain population groups. Now, remember, those two countries are coming from radically different vaccination proportion than this state far lower vaccination uh, uh, levels. And I also think it's kind of strange as well that, you know, given the fact that like, a year ago, most people would have thought that the vaccine significantly helped against the spread of the illness. Well, now we realise that in actual fact, you know, the illness does spread even when vaccinated.
3: It's a different illness, though, it, yes. It,
2: it, it's mm. less dangerous, mm. dangerous but it, it, it does spread. But so. it's
3: a different illness. It's a, a different strain. And in time, they hope that vaccines uh, will be available to tackle that strain or whatever it, it, other strain it, it, comes down the line.
2: This is a, a good point mm. you're making. Like the, 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 the booster shot that's happening at the moment is, there, is there a booster shot against the alpha variant. It's not a booster shot against either the Mm. the the delta or the omicron so it's it's three or four variants back that is being uh, vaccinated at the moment so listen the the the, the way for this country to get through the problem that it's in at the moment is to make sure that people uh, have access uh, to the vaccine that they have access to testing uh, that they have access to proper hospital capacity that there is air filters in schools in hospitality Mm. in in hospitals in workplaces um, and that there's proper antigen testing happening uh, to access venues
3: And do you support uh, what Pope Francis said yesterday?
2: Well, you know I, I think he made a, a good point with regards the uh, importance of, of the vaccine with regards uh, making sure that the illness is reduced uh, in the protection of the individual uh, And in Do the you think he
3: made a good point telling people to ignore all that guff, that nonsense that's on the internet?
2: Yeah, well, listen, I, I, I have a view with regard to the internet that if you can believe all you see, you can, you can eat all you hear. Um, there's, the, the amount of stuff on the internet is absolutely incredibly off the Richter scale with regards uh, accuracy. And, and I will say, in some of the traditional media as well, there has been a lot of information that has been put around over the last uh, couple of years, uh, which is untrue. People, we have to trust people that they're adults to be able to make up their decisions with regards the information that they're receiving, the protection of their own health and their families and their communities.
3: Do you and agree with the Pope when he says there's a moral obligation on people to get vaccinated?
2: Um, I, 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 I basically, I, I believe that adults have to make their own decisions with regards to this. And I would be very cautious, and I know where your questioning is going here, Michael, I'd be very cautious about going down the route of scapegoating um, or uh, anybody in society And saying that a person is less moral uh, because they have a a caution with regards to the vaccine. I think that if you go down the route of browbeating people, uh, calling them names, etc., that that's not helpful whatsoever. Mm -hmm. It's not actually what a liberal democracy is about. A liberal democracy is about persuading people in a positive fashion uh, about what they, they, they should and shouldn't do in terms of their own lives and in terms of society. Okay, and but do
3: you believe then there's a moral obligation on people to ignore what's on the internet, as you said, and look at the verifiable evidence in front of them and then come to a decision? Well,
2: there's no doubt. People need to look at the verifiable ev- evidence and then come to a decision. And, mm. you know, there, there's a lot of, and, ver- and, and that, and that's of evidence the- there with regards to uh, hospitalizations. And death rate. Mm. And
3: that's really the stuff that comes from scientific, uh, from the scientific world uh, and from governments around the world uh, first and first all, from uh, health uh, experts.
2: There's, there's one thing that, that hasn't been re- discussed here in uh, before, is, and this is a real issue, Michael, in that there's a lot of people who don't trust governments around the world. Now, I actually think that governments, in many ways, have added to this level of distrust over their behaviour in the past. There's also a lot of people who have distrust let's say, pharmaceutical companies too, in that pharmaceutical companies haven't covered themselves in glory in, in um, drugs such as OxyContin uh, and other drugs, uh, and including vaccines, uh, in the past. So there is a, there's a natural level of distrust amongst a certain section of society uh, to governments, to authority. Uh, and so
3: where do you suggest people get their verifiable evidence well, out of evidence? I, I well? do,
2: yeah. As I said to you, I do believe that's the most of the information that's coming from the, the scientific community in Ireland in relation to uh, hospitalizations, ICU and death clearly show that the taking of a vaccine significantly mm. reduces against those uh, three.
3: So you'd recommend in terms of vaccinations that people listen to the HSE, that they listen to the World Health Organization, that they listen to the scientific world.
2: I would absolutely recommend that they listen to the scientific world. Uh, But the the issue here is that, you know, if you ask me, should they listen to NEFETS or the CMO? um, I will say, well, the, the NEFETS and the CMO have made a lot of mistakes in the past as well. And what I'm saying to individuals is to navigate through the information, through the scientific information, and make a decision for themselves.
3: OK, we leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. That's uh, Padre Tobeen, founder and leader of ain 2 He's a TD for Mead West.
2: Michael, Michael Reid on LMFM.
3: Now, the European Commission Vice President, uh, Maris Sefcovic will meet with uh, the British Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, on Thursday of uh, this week. Liz Truss, it seems, will take over from where her predecessor, David Frost, left off in terms of uh, the negotiation on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Liz Truss met with the DUP and Sinn Féin yesterday. And let's hear a little bit more about how those meetings went because we're joined by the DUP's Jim Wells, who's an MLA for South Down. Good morning to you, Jim Wells, and thanks indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Geoffrey Donaldson, your party leader, seems to be running out of patience at this stage and is asking Ms Truss to act now or um, come to some sort of resolution with the European Union if that 's possible
5: absolutely um I think things are moving in the right direction but we need certainty, we need a date and we need Liz Truss to say that if the European Union don't concede on these important issues, Article 16 will be moved and I, I think that's a certainty we need because this has dragged on for far too long and the impact of the uh, protocol both on our economic and constitutional position continues to be, become more and more worrying.
3: Right. Uh, and I'm sure you're enthusiastic to read Liz Truss's article in uh, the Sunday Telegraph.
5: Yes, excellent. Uh, there was a repeat of the command paper that was issued in July 2021. Basically, she's recognised the enormous difficulties that the protocol is causing to this part of the Kingdom. Uh, it simply has to go, um, it, not only from a, an economic point of view, they reckon it's costing, say, £850 million a year, but also from a, a constitutional political point of view. As I keep saying to you, Donegal would never uh, accept this type of treatment in the Irish Republic, so why should Northern Ireland within the UK um, we're, this is all for 6% of our trade. It's really quite ridiculous that that, that they're using the sledgehammer to crack and fry a, a small nut. And I think things are moving, they're moving positively, but we need action, we need this trust, we need to see the colour of our money, and we need to see it fairly quickly.
3: Okay. Uh, I think uh, the European stance is uh, that they can't move any further than they've already moved.
5: Oh, well, they can, of course. They could, they could simply say that the protocol is a nonsense and, and go back to basics. I mean, the, the, the idea of the protocol is to stop goods coming in from outside the EU, i.e. Great Britain, coming into Northern Ireland and then leaking into the European Union via the border. That is 6% of the trade. 6%. 94% of the goods that come into Northern Ireland stay in Northern Ireland. They don't go anywhere. Yeah. So measures can be taken to deal with a very small amount of trade, but they do not require protocol. They require, first of all, a gradual phasing out of that uh, trade, and secondly, just a tier- trader status whereby those goods there's an undertaking given by the the importer that they will not uh, go into the Irish Republic unless they meet EU standards. Very simple. You do not need a major constitutional crisis to achieve that.
3: Okay, if that argument falls on deaf ears, and we're told it'll fall on deaf ears, uh, that there is no room for manoeuvre from the European side, uh, what then? Uh, because uh, Jeffrey Donaldson said yesterday he wants imminent progress uh, on the pro- protocol or Article 16 to be invoked. Uh, what does imminent mean?
5: Oh, well, I would say before the end of the month there has to be If if the European Union do not uh, bend on this issue then we have to move Article 16 which is entirely within the the control of the UK government. We need to show the European Union we're serious about this and we need to go back to basics and achieve an agreement that looks after the 6% of the trade without endangering the constitutional position of the United Kingdom.
3: Right. Uh, that will lead to further tension and an undermining of trust according uh, to the Irish Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, who was speaking about this yesterday and seems to be of the view, as is Sinn Féin, that the DUP is electioneering.
5: Well, obviously there's an election coming up on May the 5th and we have to be shown to be sure, strong and resolute on this issue. But, I mean, remember, it's 6% of the trade. If the Irish government are genuinely concerned about substandard goods coming in, to the Irish Republic from Northern Ireland, we can deal with that. But they know, and we know, that as things stand, Northern Ireland is semi-detached from the, from the rest of the United Kingdom. We're still part of the single market. We're still subject to the European Court of Justice. And we still are, have hundreds, if not thousands, of rules imposed upon us and no say in the European Parliament on them. So we, they understand, quite rightly... The, the, the constitutional difficulties we face, and they want to perpetuate
3: those. Mm, and
5: what we're saying is, we understand the concern about the 6%, but there's other ways of dealing with that.
3: But you'll have a, a trade deal. Uh, I mean, do you want to go to World Trade Organisation tariffs?
5: No. We want simply to have an arrangement that a very small amount of trade that comes from Northern Ireland to the Irish Republic is controlled in a way that there isn't substandard goods coming in. Mm. Now remember but you can
3: have that very easily. Uh, I mean, that's easily done. Join the European Union or rejoin the European well, Union or cancel that, Brexit.
5: Well, if that, that, that I can assure you. Northern Ireland can't unilaterally rejoin the European Union. No, I didn't think
3: you were a standalone state. I thought you were part of the United Kingdom.
5: Yeah, but the United, the United Kingdom has to take that decision. Hmm. And there's no way that, that that's, that's a dead issue that's been forgotten about. Now, we're out of the European Union, and I think that's a settled matter.
3: And we don't I'm sure you know the expression about making your bed and then lying in it.
5: Yes, but the point is that when we voted in 2016 on this issue, we did not vote for the protocol. We voted for all of the United Kingdom to leave the European Union on exactly the same basis and then to deal with the small amount of trade that goes from Northern Ireland to the Republic, by all means. But, I mean, the point is we're using a sledgehammer to crack a nut here. Because, remember, the vast majority of those goods are of European standard because they're also exported to France, Germany, etc. So there there would be very little uh, required ensure that all those goods are of European Union standard if they're going into the Irish Republic. Mm. But we've used a huge hammer to crack a very tiny nut.
3: But wasn't it your Prime Minister who negotiated the protocol?
5: I accept that in, in October 2019 and that was a huge mistake. And I think everyone now realises that, that the, the Prime Minister got this totally wrong when, when, when he uh, negotiated the protocol and now we're, we're repenting at our leisure and we realise the damage that has been done.
3: Mm. Well, um, what's going to happen then if Article 16 is invoked? What's the next step after that?
5: Well, that will show the European Union very clearly we mean business and they're going to have to negotiate a, a radical change to the present arrangements. I think it sends out a very clear signal that there is trust in the, in the Cabinet in Westminster are determined to see this through. And I think it's going to require something dramatic like that to get the European Union to see sense, because there is no training or uh, uh, rationale behind what's going on here. It's simply political. It's simply sending the UK out of the European Union with blood pouring out of its back, and in other words, making it as painful as possible to leave the EU in case the Hungarians or the Dutch or whatever
3: follow suit. So, um, the United Kingdom uh, is going to be uh, the tail that wags uh, the 27 countries that make up the dog?
5: uh, Yes, but the United Kingdom should have total jurisdiction over its entire uh, country, and at the moment we don't. And uh, I think even Europe's beginning to realise that our government's taking this issue very seriously. And uh, I would like to think there'll be major movement before the end of the month mm. on this crucial issue.
3: And do you think anybody cares, really, about uh, the United Kingdom's position outside of uh, the immediate vicinity, if you like? Obviously, it's very important here to people in the Republic of Ireland, but do you think the French or the Germans or half of uh, the European uh, countries give it hoot at this stage?
5: I, I probably, probably don't, but uh, anyone who any sense can see the long-term implications for the integrity of the United Kingdom if we allow this situation to, to continue. Mm. And, you know, it's it, it, it just, it, it's costing us a small fortune. And remember, constitutionally, we're on a limb from the rest of the UK. And I asked the question, would Donegal accept this? They wouldn't accept it for five minutes.
3: Okay. Uh, and uh, could it lead to a border poll?
5: And see the, the obvious link between the protocol and a border poll. I am confident if there was a border poll that 99% of what we'd call the, the unionist community would vote to stay within the United Kingdom and a significant proportion, maybe up to a quarter okay. of what we perceive to be the nationalist community, uh, that would ensure uh, you know, that we remain within the UK in perpetuity.
3: The next scheduled poll is uh, to be held in May uh, and it's expected... May the fifth. No, yep.
5: it's, it's written in my head. May yep. the fifth, twenty twenty-two, is the big day.
3: Yeah, and it's expected that Sinn Féin will be the largest party in Stormont after that uh, election. Uh, will uh, the DUP support a Sinn Féin for Spencer?
5: We don't yet have a policy formulated on that crucial and very difficult issue. I personally will be voting that to, that we don't go into government.
3: But uh, I thought you were in favour of share, power sharing
5: but the reality is that we as a party have a democratic right to decide whether we go in or whether we don't under the 1998 agreement. You and I know the huge uh, symbolic Importance to Sinn Féin if they have Prime Minister in the Republic, tisha in the Republic, and First Minister in Northern Ireland. That would would drive forward their campaign at an enormous rate, and we're not prepared to facilitate them in that. So therefore, that's a decision. There's people in the party who want, who would go in to power with a Sinn Féin First Minister. There are people like myself who wouldn't, and that's a decision that's going to have to be made before made, so the people know what way they're, they're voting. But. That is the mother of all issues. But, of course, the solution to that is for people in Northern Ireland to vote solidly for the DUP and then the issue doesn't arise because we get the First Minister.
3: Okay. We leave there. Good to talk to you and Happy New Year. And uh, thanks for joining us uh, this morning. Jim Wells, DUP, MLA for South. Down.
2: Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on
3: LMFM. LMS prices are through the roof. Uh, they continue to rise and uh, they will continue to rise further over the course of uh, the next 12 months. This is according to the latest survey of the real estate alliance of auctioneers in uh, this country. And let's uh, speak uh, to Gabriel O'Brien of REA O'Brien Collins Auctioneers in Drogheda. Good morning, Gabriel. Thanks, as always, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, Good morning to you michael i was looking at the increases uh, last year in your survey and it really is staggering the price of a three-bed semi over the course of the year increased by 21 percent in county loud and by 16 percent in county mead uh, it's uh, a long time i suppose uh, since we've seen increases on that scale
6: absolutely michael and i think it it took us in the property industry by surprise also i suppose um with the benefit of hindsight, it seems to have been a function and factor of the lockdown periods where um, selling selling properties and viewing properties was done virtually, but people still like to buy in the flesh. So there was certainly pent-up demand there that absolutely um, rocketed prices, um, particularly in, the, in quarters two and quarters three of 2021. And... Um, We predict more modest um, single-digit price increases during the course of 2022 because we see such large increases, Michael, as being um, unsustainable.
3: Mm. Uh, Modest, but uh, increases on top of uh, these extreme increases at the same time
6: yes they are i think for um for county louth and county meath we're we're predicting price in- increases of maybe plus or minus 5% again that is 5% it's cumulative it's on top of of those large increases in 2021 and i think that is largely related to supply there is an undersupply of um second hand homes on the market and in certain towns you know, like Drogheda and at least there are several new home schemes under construction which give first-time buyers um, a chance to get a foothold
3: OK, and there's a, there's, there's a a difference, uh, I think, uh, between uh, the Real Estate Alliance uh, survey and other surveys in that there is no disputing uh, the figures because these are actual sale prices. That your figures are, are calculated off and we're looking at uh, a 21% increase in County Louth over the year, 20.9% in Drogheda, 21% in Dundalk. Uh, where does that put prices at now?
6: So, so typically for a average three-bed um, semi-detached, we're, we're looking at in County Loud um, uh, a figure in the region of €245,000, and that is up from the start of the year of a figure of just in the early 200s. And in County Mead, we're talking about an average three-bed semi in the 280s, and that's up from an average of um, in the early 240s. So that is um, those are strong prices um, mm. for anybody who 's um typically wanting to get on the property market, and the difference we 're seeing is that first-time buyers will want to go for the new home's product because they can avail of the help-to-buy scheme in that instance, which makes that more attractive um, and in terms of buying a modern energy-efficient home.
3: There's parts of your survey uh, that (laughs) seem so uh, outrageous that I'm looking to see if there's typos. Uh, If somebody bought a house in Kells last month uh, they probably will wish that they had done so a year previously because prices increased by 20 Twenty-seven point eight percent.
6: Sure. Um, yes. I mean, there are certainly some some. Um, I suppose what we would call anomalies. But but again, these are based on actual um, house house prices and sale prices that our agents have achieved across the counties of Meath and Louth, and maybe maybe towns like let's say Ashburn and Navan would have responded um, earlier um, in the market to price increases where held and as you go further out and hmm. um, those are the towns a little bit further out Michael that are playing catch up but certainly they are very much
3: catching up. And increases of about 13%, 12.5% I think in Navin, 13% in Ashburn, 16.3% in Trim uh, and uh, there's a, a factor in all of this uh, which has uh, to do with landlords exiting uh, the market uh, they're accounting for almost one in four of all properties that are being sold.
6: They are, I mean what we are certainly finding on the ground is that there are many more landlords exiting the market than are entering it and that might be difficult to understand for your listeners out there in terms of because we're we're talking and we're hearing all the time about the huge um, rental increases out there but couple of reasons why landlords are exiting um, many of them um, during the property boom became accidental landlords who then subsequently went into negative equity and subsequent price or rather subsequent price increases but more particularly during 2021 have taken them perhaps out of negative equity and beyond that and now they see time to just um, cash in their chips and actually uh, relieve themselves from from being a, lawn, a landlord and which some people see as being um, as being a burden, um, there are other landlords who may have you know looked after um, existing tenants very well, never sought to to increase rents dramatically, and now with the, the the rental price caps, they see it as as a stage to also get out of the market because they won't get a return. So we're seeing one in four um, sellers, landlords exiting. But certainly less than 10% of buyers are new landlords entering the residential investment market.
3: All right. Uh, last time I spoke to you, I think it was uh, three months ago, uh, around the time of uh, the last REA survey, and you were telling me that at the time... In Drogheda uh, that uh, you were uh, advertising properties for sale in O'Brien Collins uh, and uh, they were selling more or less as soon as they were advertised. Does that continue to be the case? Because uh, we always are told that prices hinge on demand versus supply.
6: Yes, I suppose one one difference that we did note, uh, Michael, during the last quarter of 2021 um, was this, that um, the property market seemed to have quietened down, stroke dampened down a, a little bit in terms of um, number of inquiries coming in for viewings, for inspection, for inspections. And we put that down to a couple of things. The price, the price increases that took place dramatically in quarters two and three in 2021. Um, we found that that actually had perhaps maybe priced some people out of the market when it came towards the end of the year and they've decided to sit back and wait and see how the market develops in 2022. And other people just um, took a view that they were being outbid on several locations and that they in turn would wait and see how things would settle down. Now. I don't see I don't see any. There's no pointers out there that the market is going to dip, but I think there is there are signs rather, Michael, that the market is steadying. Um, and in terms of asking prices, we there there are um, there, the houses are staying a little bit longer on the market. Uh, the numbers of viewing requests are perhaps not as not as heady as they were mid last year. And maybe maybe what we'd all like is for a more normal functioning property market mm-hmm. that's good for the seller and that's reasonable for the buyer.
3: Yeah, well, people have found it impossible to get a house and it, it seems as though there's no end to the uh, amount of uh, building at this stage. Where's the real demand at the moment? Is, is it at the higher end or is it for apartments or somewhere in between?
6: I think the real the real demand out there at the moment in Drogheda, what we're experiencing anyway in in this town, in our own town here, is the first time buyer market. Um, they're looking for. Um they they they're looking to avail of the help to buy scheme i know there's a there's um certainly controversy about that as to as to the merits of it being in place or not but certainly we are seeing that people are using using that to to actually um secure a deposit on their first home and unlike years ago where people bought a house to perhaps trade up from in the next sort of 5 to 10 years People now are, I think, intent on buying the house for keeps, and so the first time market is is strong. But those buyers, Michael, do want to buy a house. They do want the front door. They do want the garden. The apartment market is is um, is is not so much in demand, yeah. perhaps by some investors. But typically, people do want their own front door, their own back garden, and they want to buy a house similar to or a version of rather. They grew up in
3: themselves. And is there still that pandemic, much cheaper than Dublin price tag impact on all of this? That you might be working uh, from for a company based in Dublin, but you'd be able to do it from home in Drogheda or elsewhere.
6: Absolutely. So we have a lot of buyers, that they, uh, prospective buyers rather, and the first question, um, or perhaps the second question, is broadband connection. They've worked out the, the accessibility via the motorway or public transport in and out of Dublin by themselves, but certainly broadband connection is, is a huge plus. And many of the people who are working in the foreign direct investment companies who may be only commuting in and out of Dublin once or twice a week well, look, it's, it's an obvious choice for them to or an obvious reason for them to buy a much better and larger home outside of the capital. They don't need to be in Dublin um, five days a week anymore.
3: Okay, well, that rapid increase in prices will slow down, but they'll continue to increase by 5% over the course of uh, the next year. That uh, seems uh, to be the view locally across County Louth and County Me. And we leave it there for the moment. And thank you, as always, for joining us on the programme today. Gabriel O'Brien of REA O'Brien Collins Auctioneers, based in Drogheda. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed
2: on, on LMFM.
3: It's uh, three and a half years, coming on close to four years uh, since Ghidra Ragakaichi was uh, last seen on the 29th of May in 2018 in Laytown. Yesterday, a man was questioned uh, by Gardie from Dundalk who made a trip uh, to the Midlands uh, where they arrested uh, this man. Let's uh, hear a little bit more about all of this. Stephen Breen is uh, the crime editor with uh, The Irish Sun and a uh, very good morning to you Stephen and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. You We've been following this closely, not just this week, but over the course of almost four years, as I said, at the outset. And uh, it's a prisoner uh, who has been questioned about uh, the disappearance of uh, this woman.
1: Yeah, this has been an ongoing investigation, Michael, by the investigation team at uh, Dundalk Garda Station. And this is the latest development uh, as part of their investigation where um, detectives arrested an individual yesterday on suspicion of murder Uh, the the individual was arrested uh, in prison. He's currently serving another sentence for a a different offence, and he is one of the the two men who were believed to have been with Gaidra when she was last seen alive. The other individual passed away uh, last year, so this is just the the, the remaining individual who was left um, from the the initial guard investigation where they identified this man as being with Gaidra when she disappeared, so they have now arrested him on suspicion of murder. They've spoke to him in the past where he talked about how he uh, had no knowledge of what happened to her uh, when they last saw her alive in May uh, 2018.
3: Do we know why uh, he's been arrested on suspicion of murder? Because it was a missing person investigation, was Mm -hmm. it not, Stephen?
1: It was a missing person initially, but it was quickly um, reclassified as a, Murder investigation um, by the, the detective team there at the Carter Station because they quickly established that there was no proof of life, there was no telephone contact between Deirdre and her family, no bank transactions taking place, and no signs of her. So that they were satisfied that um, she had uh, perhaps uh, been murdered, and that's why they upgraded the, the investigation to uh, a murder investigation. And they're now still uh, three and a half years down the line. still Opinion to people within Dundalk area. For anyone with information about, you know, what happened to her or where her remains might be, to come forward and, and try and support the family.
3: Right. Uh, she was living in Dundalk, was she?
1: Yes, she had, she'd been in the UK, um, but she she'd been there she came to Ireland um, just before and um, she went missing. So she was uh, living. And, and working in Dundalk, um, she was uh, at an address in Dundalk with Sigardie where we're off, just the three weeks before um, she went missing. But she'd been staying with friends and other people that she got to know in Dundalk. So um, it, it, was, it was tragic in the sense that she, she did come to Ireland for a better life. And then obviously um, this is what's happened to her where she's now um, believed to be murdered and her, her body buried somewhere.
3: Mm. Do we know why she was in Leytown?
1: She had friends, she was at a, a friend's house there on, on the night she disappeared. Um, she was with these two individuals. She was apparently in an unconscious state. You know, she wasn't in a, in a good way at all. And that's the last time she was seen alive. So she did have friends in nighttime in Drahada and Dundalk as well. So it, it's uh, a quite an extensive investigation because of the fact that she did have links to both Dundalk and Dundalk as well.
3: Okay, and uh, she made contact with her father on the twenty ninth of May, which is uh, the last date she was seen on.
1: That's the last time she ever had contact with her family. Since then, you know, her, her sister has been going on social media making appeals uh, for help for people to come forward. The Gardaí have also issued numerous appeals uh, for information as well for people to come forward. As I said, it is an active and ongoing investigation. The guards are willing and anxious to speak to anyone. He may have some information in relation to what happened to her, but the latest stage of of this investigation is the fact that this individual, he was with her on the night that she disappeared and is now being questioned
3: as a of murder. Okay, and do we know anything more about that phone call to her father? Because that was a a call uh, to where the family are in Lithuania. Uh, Was there any sign that uh, she was distressed or anything like that?
1: No, I think it was just a normal phone call that she, she regularly gives uh, her father in Lithuania. Her mother had passed away some years previously, and um, she kept in regular contact as well with her sister, who uh, he lives in London. So uh, it was just a normal phone call, but no sign that she was distressed or under any type of threat
3: mm. at that time. And... and... Uh, There's no evidence of assault or or, or murder, physical evidence that is. Uh, That's uh, the assumption that Guardi are are working off, but uh, her Mm -hmm. whereabouts or the whereabouts of her remains, uh, which uh, you would assume is the case given uh, how the Guardi are treating this now as murder, are unknown.
1: Yeah, that's still part of the Guardi's opinion as well. Obviously they have classified this as a murder investigation um, despite the fact that they haven't um, established any remains or she may have died it's just because of the fact that there has been no proof of life in three and a half years no contact with the family no telephone contact with her sisters and, and her sister in London so there, there, there's just no, nothing to indicate that she is still alive so, and that's why it, it is classed as a mother investigation
3: Okay well uh, that investigation continues with uh, this man who is already serving a sentence he's a prisoner in the Midlands uh, under arrest Stephen
1: That's correct. So he can be held for 24 hours, uh, Michael, and that period uh, of detention was extended last night. So I think the guards will either by this evening either um, charge him or or release him back into custody. So that would be a matter for the Director of Public Prosecutions and we will be liaising closely with the DPP in relation to um, if there's enough evidence there to bring a a charge of murder against him. But it's, it's important as well for in regards to continue their investigation and trying to establish what happened to her and indeed where she is, so her family can give her a Christian
3: burial. Absolutely. Well, uh, her friends as well, uh, living locally, as you say, uh, she was a member of our community, living in Dundalk with friends in Drogheda and in Laytown. Uh, There'll be a lot of people concerned uh, about her and would like uh, to see uh, this investigation uh, come to a conclusion, a successful conclusion at that. Uh, But uh, we live there for the moment, Stephen. thank you as always for joining us on the programme today. That's uh, Stephen Breen, who's uh, the crime editor with the Irish Sun. Now, thanks uh, to Mary, who's been on the phone to us. Uh, good to know that uh, you remember the telephone number, Mary. I should remind everybody <laughs> that we have this new telephone number. If uh, you haven't got it off at this stage, maybe you t- think about writing it down. Oh four one nine eight three two thousand. That's oh four one nine eight three two zero zero zero. We'll repeat it again in a moment and try to repeat it uh, every day on the programme because it is a a new number and it's something for us all to get used to uh, and uh, maybe you'd want to stick it in your phone if Uh, you feel like contacting us regularly as I know some people do uh, and we always appreciate it but Mary has been in touch with us uh, today on oh four one nine eight three two thousand to say she's furious. She's furious about how some schools have put in place what she calls ridiculous rules for students who are trying to keep warm in classrooms. Her daughter like all of her fellow students has been finding the cold hard to bear in school so since Christmas she's been bringing a hot water bottle into school and she wears it under her coat in order to try and stay warm it wasn't bulky or obstructive and it gave her a little bit of heat many others in the school were doing the same thing now the school has come out and banned them outright This is after they already banned students from wearing non-uniform hoodies. Many were wearing them under their school jumpers to help them stay warm. How do the schools expect the kids to stay warm? She heard reports of other schools not allowing female students to wear trousers to stay warm. Is it not enough that our kids have to try and learn under these circumstances without city rules, making it even more uncomfortable for them? Thanks, uh, Mary. Uh, it's, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I I really don't know. I can't understand. Uh, I think uh, there's no argument. I'm not sure that there's many. Um, there's obviously somebody who could argue with you because the schools uh, think uh, that doing something to keep you warm is wrong or offensive in some way. I can't understand that at all. And I say that sitting here in the warmth of the studio this morning. I can't imagine sitting uh, here with the windows open and trying to concentrate on what we're doing it must be must be very very difficult very very hard for the children to concentrate uh, thanks for bringing that to our attention uh, i wonder if it's uh, the same elsewhere or if it's uh, just uh, your daughter's school we would Paddy Duffy in touch with us Paddy has a couple of points to make uh, on uh, the show with us as usual he's texting today he says the housing market is heading for a deja vu and a negative equity situation maybe not tomorrow but soon and all markets have corrections and our housing market is not an exception Paddy also talking about uh, the situation in the north he says Jim Wells and the DUP are living in cuckoo land and I almost feel sorry for their supporters because they're Capable of cutting their own throats to advance their hateful bigotry. Strong thoughts as always, Paddy, and always good to hear from you. Tony in County Louth uh, in touch with us as well, a, a regular text or two, so good to hear from you, Tony. Good to hear from anybody who's been in touch. Uh, he says, Michael, it has to be said that as far as I can see, it is uh, the county councils, especially in Louth and their housing agencies, that are driving up prices of new estates, especially as they're taking everything that is built with very little concern for the price and it's as if they seem to have limitless funds. Thanks Tony for that Uh, if there's truth in that Tony I'd say uh, you could uh, knock that onto government policy which is for local authorities to provide housing Uh, so uh, maybe that's uh, what the situation is there. Jane in touch with us a very concerning text to us today from Jane uh, who says the pubs are meant to be closing at 8 o'clock but they're not Uh, Jane reckons she's seen people leaving pubs at 10 o'clock at night. Must be lock-ins, Jane, if that's the case. As I say, that's uh, concerning. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, you feel like taking that elsewhere, but I'm sure Angarda Shiaqana would be interested in hearing from you because it's a breach of the regulations. But thanks uh, indeed for joining us. Uh, And uh, we, John and Navin, I think it was John and Navin, yes. Uh, John, thanks uh, for your text about the lotto uh, again. Uh, It's a text we got, I think, last week, and we did read it out last week. uh, And uh, I'm sure people will remember the thrust of it. Uh, John believes uh, that there's something Uh, That is not right with how the lotto has not been won for all of these weeks. And uh, I think many people uh, would feel the same way. Thanks, uh, John. But just uh, to mention, we got your text. We did uh, read it out uh, last time. Maybe you didn't hear it when it was read out the last time. But thanks for getting in touch with us. Now, I said I'd repeat the phone number. It's that new phone number that we have and if you do want to ring us today of course you can always text or whatsapp or email or get in touch through social media but if you want to phone us and talk to a, a human being here at the radio station our phone number it's our new phone number it's 041 983 2000 that's 041 983 2000 that's the 041 prefix then 9832000 Michael Reed
2: on LMFM
3: I might actually repeat uh, that phone number uh, because it's new to all of us, and it's oh four one nine eight three two thousand. But not only that, you might want to make comment on our next topic oh four one nine eight three two thousand. And I say that because uh, we've had a, a lot of calls uh, since we came back to work uh, this year about various things, a lot about COVID and whatever. People might be wondering about COVID and regulations, and Novak Djokovic, or whatever the case may be, or the national lottery, or the Northern Ireland protocol. Or some of the other issues uh, that have us thinking about things, uh, but we haven't had calls uh, to the same degree as we have had about people who are very annoyed about minimum unit alcohol pricing
1: there's always been market fluctuations because of um, because of our um closeness to the border and um, there's lots of things that and um, people have gone to gone north to buy over the over the years and um, because they were cheaper for many many different reasons this is another example mm. there, there will still be alcohol bought and purchased in dundalk and it's not going to affect all alcohol. You know, the fact that you can buy a a slab of Guinness in Dundalk for 20 quid at Christmas time might not be just that all positive thing.
3: Maybe not. That was uh, Senator Aaron McGreehan speaking to us on uh, the programme yesterday and there were a lot of people saying to us when they called us, because we got a lot of calls about it, it was positive and it's not positive that it's still 20 quid, but you have to cross the border to avail of that price. Let's speak to Rory Omuruku, who's Sinn Féin TD for Laodhan East Meath and very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us as uh, someone who lives uh, uh, along the border what are you hearing from people?
4: Uh Look, you—you you, long before this, when this was been uh, mooted early in the year, we obviously would have had worries. I would have had a significant amount of businesses that would have contacted me uh, and obviously the fear was that what happened is that you literally had this brought in in the south and not carried out in the north. Now, I'm aware there's a consultation process ongoing. I, I know that uh, we've been in contact with Robin Swan in, in relation to this, but look, everybody has basically accepted the fact that it's not going to be introduced in the north until um, after the assembly elections in May, and obviously we have a number of other significant issues which you were dealing with earlier as regards Northern politics at, at this point in time. Um, yeah, I would also agree with some of the commentary that yeah, like Dundalk has always had to deal with price differentials and all the rest of it. I spoke to the Chamber of Commerce, and what they said is Dundalk has always been competitive because of having to deal with the these situations, but none of this is going to be sorted look I, I could give obviously the answer I'm going to give in relation to this we're always going to have these difficulties these differentials till we deal with um we deal with the issue of partition um the other thing in relation to costs I accept people are annoyed that uh, let's say the cost of alcohol is has gone up particularly in relation to the huge cost that people are paying for housing for rent for insurance and all those other issues that we really need dealt with now this was introduced and the idea of introducing it was as a as a health measure Uh, Scotland is the Mm. example people usually talk about and the difficulty in why you can't rail against this is the fact that uh, the the evidence is that it saves lives. And now, Sinn Féin
3: supported the legislation, I think.
4: We supported the legislation, but what we wanted was that this would occur on an all-Ireland basis. Look, the fact is, this is about, um, it's about harm reduction right mm-hmm. we all know that like prohibition in relation to alcohol isn't going to work we all realize it's it's said by many experts that if alcohol was discovered today it would probably be banned we know it's one of for certain people and certain families it causes a huge amount of issues but in accepting that there's a huge amount of people obviously that partake in uh, you know here a, a glass of wine or a couple of beers uh, I, I you know what i mean and and, and they see that as their as their right to do um now they're obvious, the, the big fear as well is that people would travel north um to do to do obviously their shopping that it wouldn 't just be alcohol shopping when they would be there they would obviously um they would they would buy other things or possibly do the grocery shopping and all the rest of it but like i said that that has always been the case in these parts, and when there's a price differential, people travel from one side to the other. look, the big thing we need to do is just is is the fact that this would be introduced in the north as as soon as possible and I accept it mm-hmm. can be annoying to that person that has to spend a bit of their disposable income more on this, particularly if that person is someone who says here i'm acting sensibly i you know what I mean, in, in the way I operate and the way I live. But the fact is there are people that don't. There are yeah. young people that I think there's still a the
3: question though over whether it works. Uh, it certainly doesn't work when you can walk across the road and get it uh, much cheaper in pounds rather than euro, which is the situation uh, for many of your neighbours and indeed many of our listeners. But does it doesn't work a- at all? Uh, I'm not sure that the Scottish example is convincing. The University of Sheffield uh, apparently did a, a study into this and they found that. That most people reported drinking the same amount of alcohol as before minimum unit pricing was introduced. They also said uh, that just one in five had re- reduced the amount of drinking since minimum unit pricing. But they also found that one in five respondents reported that they had reduced expenditure in other areas in order to purchase alcohol. So because the alcohol went up in price, they still bought the alcohol, but something else had to give.
4: Well, look, we're into the wider issue of um, the difficulties with alcohol. F- first of all, this is about, I, I suppose, chaotic drinking and binge drinking. And, and we would talk about young people where, you know what I mean, you'll get a lot more bang for a buck, mm. unfortunately, the wrong way as regards. Well, it, won't affect you know, somebody, you know,
3: it won't affect somebody who's on a high salary they can continue to chaotically yes. drink. Uh, but if you're on a low salary, maybe your children are going without breakfast.
4: I well here I, I would say in families with high incomes where somebody is drinking chaotically that eventually will probably lead to somebody losing their job and all the rest of it and there will eventually and and those families will be suffering from other things and look we need to this is only one aspect we need to tackle problem drinking across the board look we have a huge issue with with with, with this in 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 Ireland and and I accept that the arguments put up that you're taking money. From a family. But the fact is, see, at this point in time, there's a huge amount of people who, let's say, whether they are drug addicts, whether they are um, alcoholics, or whether they are gamblers, that are taking money out of, um, let's say, uh, grocery shopping out of the absolute necessities that family need to spend on. Look, we have a huge issue with all of that as I said previously. We'd love to live in an absolutely perfect uh, world where we had perfect solutions. We don't, but you you said it yourself in relation to this part of the world this certainly isn't going to work. It's not going to have a huge impact because there is the alternative here for people to travel to the north. Mm. And and my fear is the impact that that has if it's let run in relation to businesses in this particular part of the world. But I already said a huge amount of people are under really, really severe, serious um, issues as regards cost of living and energy and all the rest of it. And they are the issues that we really, really need to tackle in, in order to remove the pain that people are dealing with at this point in time. And as I say, whether that's the cost of keeping a car on the road with insurance, whether it's housing where it's the absolutely mad rents. Look, yeah. You've been dealing with some of these issues even already today yourself.
0: But <laughs> you know, we, that's we, the business we yeah. need to do.
3: We, we were talking about uh, Nicola Donnelly, a, a journalist uh, for... Uh, the mirror who uh, went uh, north of the border to buy alcohol over the weekend and uh, she spent €269.82. It it would have cost €405 for the same uh, amount of alcohol here. Uh, And what she did was she WhatsApped a few friends, she took the order, she filled up her her car and came back with a saving of €135. That's hard to argue with.
4: Yeah, look, and I've heard of a number of people that that would say themselves, it wouldn't be worth my while. But my neighbor, my friend, my cousin, my brother, my sister rang me yep. and we did it. And, and look, most of those people, that's what they're doing. It won't do any harm. They, they will not be either increasing or decreasing the amount of alcohol they take. in an awful lot of cases, those people that I'm talking about aren't problem drinkers. Look, this is one mm-hmm. tool that's aimed at problem drinkers. The money, is like going, said,
3: the money is going over the border and with it, other money, uh, because while you're there b- buying your uh, alcohol in Sainsbury's, uh, you might decide uh, to do your grocery shopping while you're at it.
4: I I already said that to you. I yeah. said that was the, that was the reason when we were, were talking about introducing this in the south alone. That I wrote to Stephen Donnelly, Porrick McLaughlin, and others within Sinn Féin were really strong in relation to this. And what we said is this will only work as a health measure if it's introduced across the border. But once again, we have had uh, I, I suppose. We, we haven't had a significant amount of communication across that border, but beyond that, we have the difficulties that we have in relation to partition, and we have obviously different electoral cycles that are now going to make an impact, and obviously the particular issues that pertain as regards the difficulties around Brexit, where mm. the DUP are at the minute. So we need to get beyond all of that to a point, obviously, of being able to um, introduce this north and south, and then we... And, and then that option won't be there. And I accept for some people that's a nuisance and, and you are taking their some of their disposable money away. But, but it's very difficult when someone says, because it mightn't be about that everybody doesn't reduce the amount of alcohol, but see if those problem drinkers do. And you know what I mean? You save lives. And we all know about the huge cost that, let's say, alcohol, and that's before you even go into drug abuse or, or yeah, any of yeah, the other yeah. issues, the impact they have on the health service and then on wider society. Okay. But not the first time we've had this discussion.
3: OK, well, maybe it'll uh, be introduced in uh, the North after the election in May. Jim Wells of uh, the DUP told us earlier on in the program that he would not vote for a Sinn Féin First Minister and uh, he expects that others wouldn't uh, and that some would. What do you make of that? Well, look here,
4: I, I, I think you either accept the democratic process or you don't. The fact is, uh, over the years unionists said they wouldn't accept a lot of things that they have look it's a changing world see on some level see the chaos within unionism the cul de sacing that they have put themselves in relation to we will pull this down if we don't get sufficient action in relation to uh, triggering article 16 to a degree it's an element of desperation we're aware where business interests be they nationalist or unionists are in the sense of recognizing that the Irish protocol works that the European commission has been really forthcoming in relation to solutions and we assume that all we were getting from Liz Truss is an element of just a continuity of sabre-rattling and probably from Boris Johnson uh, diverting from other difficulties that he have has at this point in time.
3: Okay, We we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Rory Oumaraku, Sinn Féin TD for Loud and Eastmead. Eric Cuthbert says the only thing that minimum pricing does is cause hardship for the ordinary man, that's the last thing they need, says Eric. Tony and County Loud and Jerry Brady have both been in touch to Give out to me about the new phone number that I keep announcing. They, they're making the point it's not a new phone number. Uh, they both say that they've had it in their phone book since the day the radio station opened. I, absolutely, you're right. I beg your pardon. It's a new comment line number. The old eighteen fifty comment line number is gone. So it's uh, the landline number oh four one nine eight three two thousand. And thank you both for making that point with us today. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. FM. Now, you remember last week, uh, President uh, Joe Biden didn't mince his words when he was condemning a, a mob uh, that launched uh, an attack on democracy at the heart of a democracy a year ago on uh, the 6th of January on Capitol Hill. A mob
7: breaking windows, kicking in doors, breaching the Capitol, American flags on poles being used as weapons, as spears fire stingers being thrown at the heads of police officers. A crowd that professes their love for law enforcement assaulted those police officers, dragged them, sprayed them, stomped on them. Over 140 police officers were injured. We all heard the police officers who were there that day testify to what happened. One officer called it, quote, a medieval battle and that he was more afraid that day than he was fighting the war in Iraq. They've repeatedly asked since that day, how dare anyone, anyone diminish, belittle or deny the hell they were put through. We saw with our own eyes. Rioters menace these halls, threatening the life of the Speaker of the House, Literally erecting gallows to hang the Vice President of the United States of America. What did we not see? We didn't see a former president who had just rallied the mob to attack, sitting in the private dining room off the Oval Office in the White House, watching it all on television and doing nothing for hours.
3: Let's talk to Larry Donnelly, Law Lecturer with NUI Galway and Political Analyst with the Journal.ie. Good morning to you, Larry, and thanks indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. I'm not sure actually whether uh, I should uh, be welcoming you back after you're going home. Uh, for the new year, or welcoming you, welcoming you home uh, to Ireland after being in America for the new year, but probably both. Uh, it was a, a an unprecedented uh, speech, uh, a very powerful speech that President Biden gave, unprecedented in terms of uh, the criticism of his predecessor. But he, he summed it up pretty well, didn't he?
0: Yeah, I think he did. I mean, as you say, I was over in the U.S. Uh, last week for it. Uh, and certainly it was a very, very strong speech. You could hear the conviction uh, in President Biden's voice just there. Uh, and really, his, his take on events were, is pretty unassailable. Uh, that is exactly what happened. I think the testimony of the police officers on the Capitol that day, uh, in particular, uh, says just how, just how horrendous uh, a day it was for them uh, and, for, I think, for our country and for our democratic ideals uh, as they say, and and that the president stood by and watched it happen uh, and then subsequently told those people that uh, we love you and you're, you're great people and, you know, please go home now in peace, but, uh, you know, we still love you. Uh, and I think that that was quite an extraordinary uh, moment, probably the low point uh, of four years that I think were very, very difficult uh, in the United States. But make no mistake about it, Michael, I mean, there's a substantial constituency in the United States uh, who still think that what, happens, what happened that day was either uh, some sort of conspiracy engendered by uh, the Democrats or elements of the FBI, etc., or, uh, on the other hand, um, they're willing to look past what happened and say that it was in some way justified because uh, the election was stolen from Donald Trump. So even to this day, mm. uh, I suppose the division and everything else that we saw on display that day, uh, it persists in the United States and it persists. Uh, among some high-ranking Republicans who are responsive to uh, the radical elements in their midst to increasingly uh, control the Republican Party.
3: Okay, and uh, I was reading your article in uh, the journal. I know you spent a a bit of time when uh, you were in uh, the United States uh, watching Fox News, getting a a sense of that perception that a lot of Americans have.
0: Yeah, it it really was extraordinary. I mean, as I said in the piece uh, I watch Sean Hannity, uh, the conservative commentator a lot of times who's been in the news recently because uh, he was in contact regularly with the president himself and with others uh, in the Trump administration saying that uh, this was a bad idea, you need to back off this stuff that is uh, January 6th and the claims of election fraud, et cetera. So any claim whatsoever to uh, impartiality or to journalistic integrity I think really goes out the window. But listening to Sean Hannity, what you got over and over again was that uh, the Biden administration has been a total disaster. And it's all because uh, the Democratic Party is enthralled to far left wing uh, socialist outfits, uh, socialist elements. Uh, that's what the Democratic Party is all about now. Uh, and Trump actually was a great leader who uh, we didn't realize how good we had it. Uh, and make no mistake, Michael, mm. uh, that is all a naked plea uh, to voters in ahead of the midterm elections, uh, really making the case to those voters uh, who veered away from Trump, who veered towards Biden uh, in the presidential election, that uh, they need to come back to the Republican Party uh, because it's too it's too dangerous. The Democrats have been too far left, uh, and the Biden administration has been a disaster. Uh, really, there's no uh, truth to a lot of what he says. Uh, but an awful lot of people, as you say, uh, listen to that message and wrap it up.
3: Yeah, speaking of journalistic integrity, I remember the 6th of uh, January last year very well, and I found it very hard to go to bed. I think you stayed up all night, and I remember speaking to you uh, the next morning, uh, and both of us had been watching Donio Sullivan on CNN. Uh, Donia has uh, become a, a bit of a, a national hero here since then with a, a really good program uh, about him, his professional, and his personal life uh, 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 on RTE television uh, in the last week or, or so. Uh, but it, it was fascinating watching back on some of the events and some of the people that he's been speaking to since then uh, and the role of President Biden, uh, one woman uh, telling people, to the shock of many of us watching the RTE program, uh, that Joe Biden has never been in the White House, uh, and she believes that uh, he's actually speaking to people from a uh, television set when he appears to be in the Oval Office.
0: Yeah, there's really shocking stuff. Ian Sodoni, he's done some great journalism on this front. Uh, there's really some shocking stuff that a lot of Americans are ready to believe. Uh, and, you know, it, you know that's, that's the, the more radical elements of the Trump following, uh, I think we've seen a few interesting things, and I said this, Michael, before in, in Trump's pivots uh, as of late. Uh, in, in, in essence, he has moved away from some of the more radical uh, elements of his support base. Uh, first of all, he declined to give an address uh, on the anniversary of January 6th, something that uh, those people, those conspiracy theorists, would have been banging for and saying, we need to hear from you, uh, you know, former President Trump. Today is your day to shine. Uh, he backed off that at the behest. Uh, both of congressional Republicans, uh, who he never listened to in the past, and of his legal advisors. Remember that the January 6th committee is still investigating uh, everything. So he backed off of that. Uh, and moreover, he has also very strongly endorsed vaccination against COVID-19, something for which he was booed uh, when speaking to supporters, because, again, that more radical element uh, is very anti-vax. So what you might be seeing here, and again, nobody knows if Donald Trump is going to run again or not, but what may be happening here is some little bit of uh, triangulation on Donald Trump's part. That is, uh, those more radical elements, they have nowhere else mm. to go. They're going to stay with him. But I think Trump recognizes that in order to win the Republican nomination, and more importantly, in order to have any chance uh, at winning the presidency, uh, he's going to need a whole cadre of Americans who were really repulsed by what happened on January 6th, who don't buy into the anti-vax stuff, who don't buy into the yep. uh, conspiracy theory stuff. He may be pivoting ever so cutely and ever so slightly here. Yeah.
3: The conspiracy theorists are a global movement, aren't they? And I think probably started in America, and they feed into that anti-vax movement here and elsewhere. Uh, I was watching a, another program on Channel Four about Q anon. Uh, which uh, is uh, this theory uh, that uh, a CIA agent was getting messages out to the world uh, so that they could warn about all sorts of terrible conspiracy theories, and a lot of them, it seems, hinging on protection of children. Uh, But uh, it was a programme that spoke uh, to an advisor to President Trump, a former American general uh, from uh, the... Uh, United States Army uh, and indeed to a number of people who had hoped to run for Congress uh, who were making all sorts of allegations including the fact Uh, that uh, President Obama uh, was uh, not the father of his children, uh, something else altogether different, and that his wife was not a a woman and was really just a a way of making these children accessible to him and in fact that she was a a man and has the anatomy of a a man. And these people stood stone-faced in front of the camera and said this and will seek election based on those principles. It's an odd situation we find ourselves in, Larry.
0: It certainly is. You know, and I saw, I saw that same documentary, and there's a lot of very, very wild things. It's disturbing uh, that people have rallied around this or, or believe these things. And it shows you, uh, I think, again, something we discussed before, Michael, which is the, uh, the desperation and the anger among so many Americans that they're willing to latch on to uh, these wild conspiracy theories. Uh, that in some ways, they believe them because they think that they're responsible for um, the, in many cases, unenviable and sad fates that they have suffered. Uh, as the effects of technology, globalization, so-called free trade deals, et cetera, have been felt across the United States. They are latching on to these sorts of things. But I would say that um, those people remain very much a fringe element of uh, you know, the Republican Party and uh, indeed of Donald Trump's support base. Uh, you know, For instance, I was among my friends last week. Uh, my friends are among uh, roughly halfway divided in terms of their support for Donald Trump or their opposition to Donald Trump. Um, they would laugh at those people. Those who would support Trump would laugh at those people and say that they're ridiculous, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, nonetheless, they would support the president. And I think it is very much that audience that the president, uh, if he does intend on making another run for uh, the Republican nomination, uh, it's that audience very much that uh, he has in mind. And he knows that um, the core elements of his message, leaving aside the conspiracy theory stuff, the core elements of his message still have a very strong resonance with uh, Grassroots Republicans, and indeed even more broadly uh, than that, uh, it's a matter, I suppose, uh, of how he p- portrays that message and how he puts some of the more damaging stuff about himself behind him. Uh, I think it may be—it's probably a bridge too far to climb. But it has been interesting to watch his pivots in recent days.
3: Okay. Larry, welcome home. Uh, just to be clear, and happy new year, and thank you for joining us as always. Larry Donnelly, law lecturer with NUI Galway and political analyst for the journal.ie. Michael Reed, Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Sergeant Patrick Smith of Trim Garda Station joins us for the report this week and thanks for doing so. We're going to begin with a burglary that occurred in Carlinstown just a little over a week ago.
8: Good morning, Michael. And happy New Year. Kells um, Gardy are investigating a burglary which occurred at approximately 6:30 p.m. on Tuesday, the 4th of January, at Carlingstown Kells and Mead. Entry was gained through forcing the front window, and a legally held firearm was stolen. So we're just looking for if anyone was in the area or if anyone noticed any suspicious activity or it can help us in any way. I we'll wonder, could you contact Kells Gardy on 046 928 0820?
3: Uh, another burglary in County Meath to, to report on next, uh, this one in Athboy.
8: Yes, um, Kells Gardaí are also investigating another burglary um, which occurred between 2.30pm and 10.45pm on Friday the 7th of January at mitchellstown Athboy, in Meath. Entry was gained by forcing the back patio door. Now, we believe that this crime may be linked to similar burglaries in the Delvin area on the same date. And during these burglaries in the Dalvin area, a small black hatchback car was observed acting suspiciously. So, again, we're appealing for the public's help there in the time of the area. If anyone noticed any suspicious activity, would you please contact my colleagues in Kells again on 046 928 0820.
3: Next to an incident uh, that occurred at Gormanston train station and some items uh, that were stolen, Uh, a window was put in in a car, was it?
8: Yes, Michael. Um, Laytown and Gardie are investigating a theft from a parked vehicle at Gormanstown Train Station, which occurred on Saturday, the eighth of January, between eleven forty-five and twelve forty-five. And as we stated there, the back passenger window was smashed, and a number of items were taken. Uh, again, we're helping. We're looking for any assistance again from anybody in the area, uh, and please contact Laytown Gardie on zero four one nine eight one three three two zero. And Michael, again, I would just like to take this opportunity mm. to highlight to our listeners that not to leave any valuables in sight when you've parked up your vehicle.
3: OK, to a very specific uh, appeal now, because uh, some uh, criminal damage uh, was done uh, to a garage last Thursday, but you have CCTV and you have a description of the individual who may have been involved and, indeed, what he was driving.
8: Yes, Michael. Um, the Leak Gardie are investigating an incident of damage to a door and a window of a garage at a private residence at Lotter, the Leake County Mead. This occurred on the 6th of January at approximately 3 a.m. Now, the owner has CCTV, and, uh, which shows a suspect who we believe was a male, had a beard, and was wearing a hoodie. Uh, the Gardaí have also carried out local inquiries and they've established that a wine Renault McGann with a possible reg of 10 D was acting suspiciously in the area the night before. So, again, we're appealing for anyone that noticed any suspicious activity uh, right in around the area to contact my colleagues at Ashbourne Garda Station on O one eight zero one zero six zero zero.
3: one okay to Dundalk, a burglary, and a lot of PlayStation games have been stolen.
8: Yes. Um, Dundalk Gardaí are investigating a burglary which occurred between 10.45 to 4.50pm on Tuesday the 4th of January. The entry was gained to this private residence by forcing the front door um, property was taken, including a substantial amount of PS4 games. So we're looking just for any local information, especially if anyone in the locality has been approached to buy a large consignment of P- PS4 games. And any information in related to this incident, please contact our colleagues in Dundalk, at station on 042 double eight four
3: double zero. Mindless Vandalism next uh, at Drogheda Town Football Club.
8: Yes, Draw the Guardian investigating uh, criminal damage to, to their all weather pitch at Drada Towns Football Club on Wednesday, the fifth of January at three forty PM. Now Gardaí have established that a number of youths had congregated in the area and caused damage to the pitch. Um CCV is in the area and has been currently downloaded. So again we're looking for local information. Uh if anyone can was in the area or noticed these youths, if you could contact my colleagues at Draw the Garda station on 041. Nine eight seven four two zero zero,
3: And we'll conclude with a, a word of caution, a, a warning uh, to people to watch out for the grandparent scam. What's that about?
8: Yeah, yes, this seems to be a new scam that's emerging there. So in essence what it is, is a text message. You will receive a text message um, and it's a random text message. It's purporting to be possibly a family member stating that they're looking for financial help or they're in some sort of trouble uh, and this needs to be kind of kept a secret between both parties. So, as I said, there pretend to be a family member, um, the, possibly the family member is based in the foreign jurisdiction, um, so we're stating that the and text will say we need urgent financial assistance, for example, to pay a medical bill or a fine, and then they, the suspect is looking for the money to be transferred directly into the account. So we're advising uh, all persons that to be wary of unsolicited text messages, Um, do not volunteer any information. Um, This is known as fish, for basically they're fishing for facts. And we're basically saying to people to resist the urge to act immediately, no matter how dramatic the story may be, and to basically trust your instincts and also try to verify any person's identity when they're sending such text messages.
3: Okay, we we'll leave there, thank you indeed and we'll return to the Garda Crime Desk around the same time on next Tuesday's programme with thanks today to Sergeant Patrick Smith of Trim Garda Station, that's our programme for today and God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM Good morning, bye bye
2: The Michael Reid Show podcast, tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM to contact us, email now michael at lmfm